Live as children of light. That's what it says in our passage today. Live as children of light. So it's page 1,176. 1,176. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant suffering, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor, there should, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is God's word. This is God's word. Well, again, I just want to start by taking us back to that verse, verse 8, where it says this, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. I would suggest that uh, this one verse is a great summary of this whole letter of Ephesians that we've been looking at from September all the way through to the start, well, start of our Christmas season. 
And the first half, the first sentence of this two-sentence verse represents the great theme of the first half of this letter, chapters one to three. The first half of the letter is all about the, the great and manifold and glorious blessings of receiving Christ as your risen Lord and Savior. That it's saying in the first three chapters that becoming a Christian isn't some kind of extra add-on. It's not as if we sort of uh, become a Christian, it's like having a vitamin supplement that somehow we're just a, 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 a two-plus version of ourselves. We're not just a, a, got a slight upgrade. Rather, becoming a Christian involves a complete revolution, a rebirth, and you become a new person. For example, back when we was looking at chapter 2, we looked at what our condition was without Christ, that we were spiritually dead. That's what this letter says. Then, by grace, which is a free, undeserved gift of God, we were made alive. Not because we did anything special, but because God loves you, he saw you, and he rescued you. And so the theme of the first three chapters is that becoming a a Christian is not a matter of adopting a new moral code or becoming a nicer version of yourself. It's about becoming new. And it says this in verse 8, For you were once darkness, and now you are light in the Lord. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say becoming a Christian is some kind of incremental process in which we were once in the darkness and slowly, bit by bit, we're coming out into the light. No, it says that we were once not in darkness, we were once darkness. We were darkness and now we are light. Do you see, it's a binary, it's immediate, it's a radical transformation when you accept Jesus as your Lord. There's something that happens on a spiritual level in which you were darkness and now you are light. It's a radical transformation. This new life is a holy, undeserved gift from God, a gift that cost Jesus his life upon that cross, not that cross, um, another cross, but it cost Jesus his life, and it's freely offered to everyone, and the moment that you say to Jesus, I give you my sins, he gives you his righteousness, and suddenly we were, which we were all darkness, the moment that he gives us his righteousness, the moment we come to him as savior, we become light, We are justified, just as if I'd never sinned. And it's a free gift. Again, chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Christianity is not about us. It's about what Jesus has done for us upon the cross. And now we move into the second half of our letter, which is, which is tackling the subject of look at all of that. Look at what Christ has done for us. How then will you live differently? Is it going to make any difference to your lives? Because if you have captured that, 
then it will make a difference to your life. In light of this amazing gift of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of new life, how will we live differently? And this, saints, is the right way around. Chapters one to three comes before chapters four to seven. Because you know, we, we don't you know, follow God's commands and that is how we become a Christian. We, we are made alive in Christ and in response, we live distinctly. We choose to follow God's guidance for our lives. And so chapters four to six can be summarized by the second sentence of this verse, verse eight. Live, therefore, I've put in the word therefore, you know, live as children of light. Notice first, you were once darkness and now you are light. And in response to this gift, live as children of light of light. And so in response to everything that we've heard in all the previous weeks, weeks when we've been looking at chapters one, two, and three, how are we going to live differently? And that's what we're looking at today when we reach chapter five. How will we respond? Or to use the words of this verse, how should we live as children of light? That is our identity. How can we live authentically in line with who we are? And there are three themes in this passage that I hope we've got time to look at. Um, I'm not saying we do have time to look at all of them. I'm keeping a close eye on the time. And so we're going to look at the the first theme, um, uh, uh, give it our most attention, because that's the most attention that this passage gives it. We want to be guided by the passage that we're looking at. And, And the big chunk of this passage is verses 1 to 14, 14 verses. And in these verses, Paul is encouraging us to live faithfully. Live lives of obedience. Live faithfully. And he urges us to do a couple of things here. He urges us to flee from sin and also to keep watch that we're not being deceived. To flee from sin and to keep watch that we're not being deceived. So first in verse 3 and then in verse 5, Paul urges us to flee from sin Let's read again these verses, verse three. But there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are not proper for God's holy people. And then in verse five he says, for of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Such a man is an idolatry because we are putting ourselves at the center. You know, if we do these things, we're putting ourselves at the center of our lives. We're saying, God isn't king of my life. I am the king of my life, and I will choose to do what I want to do. And there are two broad themes mentioned here, and they were really uh, prevalent in the culture of Ephesus, particularly around the worship of Artemis at the time of writing. And, uh, however, this letter is just as relevant to us today in 2022, Maidenhead. It is just as relevant for us today. And the first of these broad themes that is mentioned here is sexual immorality. And it's mentioned twice in these two verses. And the Greek word that is used is the word pornea. It's the word from which we get the word pornography from. And uh, when Paul uses the word pornea, uh, he has in mind a whole range of sexual activity. 
When he uses the word pornea, the Apostle Paul has in mind every form of sexual activity outside of a lifelong, exclusive marriage between one man and one woman. That is what Paul is speaking of here. Everything outside of that. And in verse 5 we read this. For, you, for this you can be sure, no immoral, he used the word pornea, impure or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, or of Christ and of God. And so what Paul is urging us here to do, and it was radically countercultural at the time of writing, and it's, and it's still countercultural for us today, particularly in the last 20 years, it says we are to flee sexual immorality. And likewise, we are to flee greed. And again, our culture is quick to justify all kinds of things that the Bible would consider as greed. And this is the point there should be a radical dislocation between how we live as Christians and how those who do not yet know Jesus live. There should be a radical dislocation. That is what Paul is saying here. That has been the truth throughout history. You know, throughout all the streams of whether you're Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, Pentecostal, there is supposed to be a radical difference. And this is the main force of what Paul is saying. We are to live faithfully. We are to live in obedience with what God commands us. And by and large, it's not actually difficult to understand the ways in which God wants us to live. The difficulty is not understanding what God wants us to do. The difficulty is in living obediently. And it is difficult. You know, we all struggle. Jesus struggled with sin. We all struggle. And so what I want everyone to hear, myself included, but especially uh, all those that are struggling with, you know, uh, any or any or aspect of pornea, any aspect of greed, indeed anything that you are struggling with in your personal lives, you know, what anything that you're struggling with, which is not in keeping with God's good plan for your life. What I want you to hear is that you are welcomed here, and that God loves you. And that there is grace and mercy for each and every time that you come afresh to God and to seek his forgiveness. There is mercy every time, no matter what you've done, no matter what you are still struggling with. If you are coming to Christ with that, God wants to show you mercy. God wants you to come to him with your struggles, not flee from him. We're meant to flee from sin. And if we're fleeing from sin, the opposite direction is God. And, and I want also to celebrate and support our brothers and sisters who are not married and who are seeking to live a celibate lifestyle, who are choosing to faithfully follow God's word instead of the clambering voices of contemporary culture. You know, live as children of light. This is who the Bible says we are. We're meant to be lights shining in the darkness. We're not meant to be at one 
with culture. You know, we're meant, when, when, the, when, the, when the Nazis rose up, the church was meant to resist Nazis, uh, na, na, uh, the Nazis. You know, when, when Marxists and communists rose up, they were meant to resist it. There's meant to be a radical dislocation in the way that we live. And we are urged to recognize sin and to flee from it. And in verse 6, we are warned of the dire consequences of unrepentant, unrepentant sin. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath is com- it comes on those who are disobedient. You see, again, as I've said in previous weeks, we understand, we misunderstand the word wrath, because when we speak about human wrath, it's about uncontrolled, unbridled anger, a loss of emotion. But God's wrath is settled, deserved condemnation of sin. And let's be absolutely clear here, Christians who fall into sin, or into any kind of sin, are not, are not automatically the recipients of God's wrath. If you're a follower of Jesus, then Jesus has taken that punishment, the wrath of God, which we all deserve upon himself. And we read in scriptures, and I love to remind myself of this every morning before I get out of bed, because every day I fail God. And I remind myself every morning that God's mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. So no matter what I've done the day before, God's mercies are new every morning. And his steadfast love is for me. And his steadfast love is for you. There is mercy for everyone who truly repents. You see, this talk of God's wrath coming to those who are disobedient is not about when we, when I, because I certainly do, I, can, I certainly do mess up. When, when, we, when we mess up and when we repent and we come back to God and when we say to God, I intend to lead my life your way, I intend to put you at the center of my life, this wrath comes instead upon those inside and outside of the church who say this, who say this, you know, I do not repent of this behavior. This is who I am. Am. This is my identity. I have no intention of changing. God might say it's wrong, but He is the one who is wrong. You see, the radical difference here one group of people is trying day after day, and, and, and to be honest, probably failing day after day, and I put myself into that camp. But each time that they fail, they get up and they acknowledge what they've done is wrong in God's sight and they seek his forgiveness. And the other, well, they have no intention of seeking God's forgiveness. They claim that they're doing nothing wrong and they set themselves up as a higher authority to God. You see, one sits under God's word and the other sits in judgment onto God's word. And there's a stark warning in this verse, you know, that there, uh, for those, uh, that there are those that are seeking to deceive us. And saints, there are those seeking to deceive us. And to be honest, you know, we, 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 our hearts would quite like to be deceived. But are we going to live by this or not? You know, let no one deceive you with empty words. For of such things, God's wrath comes upon those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. There are those 
even within the church, who will say that what this book says is wrong. Or they'll say, you know, we've got to explain it away. Let's try to explain it away. And saints, we must be vigilant. You know, and I could give you many examples here, but I'll just take one now of the scholar, Luke Timothy Johnson. And of this subject, he says the following. He says this, the task demands intellectual honesty. I have little patience with efforts to make scripture say something other than what it says through appeals to linguistic or cultural subtleties. The exegetical situation is straightforward. We know what the text says. But what are we going to do with what the text says? I think, and this is him speaking, not me, I think it is important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture. That is what people are saying. This is what we are faced with. This is why we are warned to be vigilant. There are those even within the church, like Luke Timothy Johnson, who are looking to deceive you with empty words. Empty words because they're contrary to the word of God. This is a New Testament professor speaking, and he is stating that there is no justification in Scripture for sexual activity outside of marriage, but that we should reject, we should reject this command of Scripture. As we've heard in previous weeks, the great theme in this letter is unity. That is what Paul is trying to get us towards. And yet, do you see what uncompromising stance he is taking with such false teaching? He says this, despite all he says in unity, he says this, therefore, do not be partners with them. Because this stuff is important. We are to seek unity but unity in truth, not unity at the expense of truth. How can we live as children of life? We are to live faithfully. And uh, just notice time, so we've got to whistle through the next point. Secondly, uh, luckily there's only a couple more verses to go. Verses 15 to 17, we are to live wisely. Uh, and, uh, And this is what the next two verses says. Verse 15, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. How can we live wisely? Well, there's a couple of points we could draw out of that, um, but we only have time to look at one. How can we live wisely? Use your time well. Use your time well. We are here to make the most of every opportunity. You see, wise people make the most of their time. They recognize that the time that we have is the most precious commodity anyone has. And all of us have the same amount at our disposal. 60 minutes in every hour, 24 hours in every day. And wise people use time to the fullest possible advantage because once it is passed, you cannot recover it. Someone once placed the following advert. It reads this, lost yesterday, somewhere between sunrise and sunset, two 
golden hours, each set with 60 diamond minutes. No reward offered, for they are gone forever. For they are gone forever. To live wisely is to use your time well. How can we live the children's life uh, light, live faithfully, live wisely, and lastly, live thankfully? And that's the last three verses. Again, we can only spare a few words on these final three verses. But here we see the key to living a faithful life, a life of obedience, a life of wisdom, is found in our relationship with Jesus. Because, as it says in this passage, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, when we find our satisfaction and our delight in Jesus, then we find ourselves walking closely with him. And so, we end where we began, where it always begins, where it has forever began. The loving purposes of God, who loves you, and who came to rescue you, and Jesus who gave his life upon the cross for you. He laid down his life for you, why? Because of anything you've done? No, because he loves you with an unstoppable love. He loves you, and if we can get this, if we can let the truth of Ephesians 1 to 3 saturate and soften our hard hearts, then we will find ourselves living for Jesus, not out of duty, but out of joy, because we want to please the one who loves us so much. And so let us stand and we're going to pray together.